One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and other cool stuff. Today, we're going to talk about split infinitives and missing words in slang. When adults are ambushed with the concept of grammar, for example, when they meet someone who goes by the name Grammar Girl, they often reach into the depths of their grade school memories and come up with something along the lines of, don't split infinitives, right? Indeed, splitting infinitives is a grammar topic, but the rule you may have learned against splitting infinitives isn't as hard and fast as you might imagine. Infinitives are the two-word forms of verbs such as to read, to write, and to illustrate. If you want to remember what a split infinitive is, just remember what might be the most famous example, Star Trek's to boldly go where no one has gone before. To boldly go is a split infinitive. Boldly splits to go. When you split an infinitive, you put something, usually an adverb, between the two parts. To diligently read. To happily write. To scientifically illustrate. The idea that you shouldn't put an adverb in the middle of an infinitive was mentioned earlier, but was most prominently introduced by Henry Alford, the Dean of Canterbury, in his 1864 book, The Queen's English. Alford didn't state it as a rule, though. Instead, in response to a correspondent who liked phrases, such as to scientifically illustrate, he said he saw, quote, no good reason, unquote, to split the infinitive. One reason Alfred gave for his belief was that nobody was doing it. He wrote, quote, this practice is entirely unknown in English speakers and writers, unquote. But the Oxford English Dictionary disagrees, reporting that split infinitives were widespread at the time. In fact, many respected writers, both before and after Alfred's time, have employed split infinitives, including Thomas Cromwell, Daniel Defoe, Lord Byron, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Elizabeth Gaskell, Benjamin Franklin, and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. From this shaky start, Alfred's opinion about split infinitives somehow made its way into the general consciousness and English school books, and it was taught as a rule to generations of children and journalists, according to the Fowler brothers, authors of the popular and enduring 1907-style guide, The King's English. Although the Fowlers found the split infinitive ugly, they nevertheless felt that prohibitions had gone too far. They wrote, quote, The split infinitive has taken such hold upon the consciousness of journalists that instead of warning the novice against splitting his infinitives, we must warn him against the curious superstition that splitting or not splitting makes the difference between a good and a bad writer, unquote. The rule never stuck with experts. 
Although I hesitate to say it's impossible to find a credible grammar book that wholeheartedly recommends against split infinitives, I've never seen or heard of such a book. Even the elements of style, beloved by the public but often disparaged by modern experts for being overly prescriptive, it doesn't recommend against split infinitives, but instead takes a practical approach. Quote, Some infinitives seem to improve on being split, just as a stick of round stovewood does. For example, I cannot bring myself to really like the fellow. The sentence is relaxed, the meaning is clear, the violation is harmless and scarcely perceptible, unquote. Even though early objectors claimed that split infinitives were the currency of the uneducated, a 2010 study by Moises de Perales Escuerdo from the University of Michigan found that some split infinitives are common in formal situations. For example, the phrase, to better understand, commonly appears in academic, magazine, and newspaper writing. Some split infinitives have become set phrases in English, such as Star Trek's to boldly go, meaning that to go boldly would sound odd. In the case of a typical split infinitive, though, a writer can usually move the intervening words without much offense. I'm going to generously frost these cupcakes becomes I'm going to frost these cupcakes generously. In less common instances, moving the adverb makes the sentence awkward. I want to quickly stop at the bank becomes I want to stop at the bank quickly. A more natural sounding choice would be I want to stop at the bank for a minute. In some cases, moving the adverb can also change the meaning. I want to really hit this one out of the park means you want the ball to go as far as possible. But I really want to hit this one out of the park conveys more of a sense of determination than a commentary on actual distance the ball will fly. Finally, some sentences actually require a split infinitive. For example, in a 2004 language log post, Arnold Zwicky provides an instance in which a writer must split an infinitive. Quote, he expects the staff size to more than double within two years, unquote. You can't move more than anywhere else in that sentence without a major rewrite. When faced with the clear lack of evidence that splitting infinitives is wrong, but also faced with the almost knee-jerk reaction that's common in the general population, split infinitives, wrong, or the vague notion, I'm not sure what split infinitives are, but I think I heard they're wrong, what's a modern writer to do? Well, the only logical reason to avoid splitting infinitives is that there are still a lot of people who mistakenly think it's wrong. If you write from a position of power, split your infinitives as much as you want. Be guided by the sound and flow of your sentence. On the other hand, if you have to please others or avoid complaints, it's safer to avoid splitting infinitives. There's no reason to deliberately split infinitives when you know it's going to upset some people. I wrote that segment, and it originally appeared in Office Pro Magazine, a publication of the International Association of Administrative Professionals. Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules 
only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life. Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages, and you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone immerses you in many ways with its intuitive process. It's really different. You pick up the language naturally, first with words, then the phrases, and then with sentences. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for fifty percent off. Is it RosettaStone.com/grammar? That's fifty percent off unlimited access to twenty-five language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your fifty percent off at RosettaStone.com/grammar today. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on Auto Trader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader. Hey there! If you are a curious person who loves to learn, there's another podcast I think you'll really enjoy. Freakonomics Radio is hosted by best-selling author Stephen Dubner and drives into the hidden side of business, economics, and so much more. He interviews CEOs, historians, and Nobel laureates to explore all kinds of topics, like why using swear words is more important than you think, and the psychology behind why projects are always late. New episodes of Freakonomics Radio are available every week wherever you get your podcasts. This next piece from Isabel Burke, a research fellow of linguistics at Monash University, describes a really interesting way that some slang phrases lose words, and also reminds me of the 1957 song by Sam Cooke, "Darlin' You Send Me." Some slang phrases resemble ripped jeans. Not only do they rapidly ping pong in and out of fashion, but they appear to have several important chunks missing. But there's no need for distress, unlike the denim. These grammatical slots have been left blank intentionally. Take the phrase "is sending me," for example. If you're unfamiliar with this one, for example, that text is sending me, or "you're sending me." It's used as an expression of amusement in response to something funny. Although some definitions broaden beyond the Urban Dictionary definition to include a reading. To delight or thrill, in standard English, the verb send requires not only a direct object, for instance, me, but also a complement, which is often indicated by a prepositional phrase, such as to the supermarket. Generally, you send something somewhere. This complement could also be an adjective. It's sending me crazy. But whatever its word class, it does need to bother showing up. But in the slang context, the complement is conspicuous in its absence. A similar phrase, "I can't even," is probably now reaching the status of that old millennial chestnut. 
Internet linguist Gretchen McCulloch has vividly dubbed this as, quote, stylized verbal incoherence mirroring emotional incoherence, unquote, a phrase that indicates speechlessness from strong emotion. The speaker is understood to be too overwhelmed to provide the main verb that accompanies auxiliary verbs such as can. This has spawned several related phrases, such as, I have lost the ability to can. The effect of this on the formerly humble auxiliary verb can has been extraordinary. Like some miracle drug cure, the power of internet speak slang has rapidly restored many of the grammatical abilities it had centuries ago. Now, like main verbs, it can occur in non-finite form, as an infinitive after two, as in, I have lost the ability to can, and it can even take direct objects, I can piano. I once unwisely chose this verb to demonstrate auxiliaries to an undergraduate syntax class and quickly learned of its new abilities. This is what I like most about slang, its ability to insouciantly sidestep seemingly invoidable rules of grammar. Missing bits aren't the exclusive province of slightly dated internet slang either. Both Australian and New Zealand English also use slang expressions with missing standards of comparison, as in the classic Kiwi expression, sweet as. This once showed remarkable productivity with a range of adjectives, easy as, funny as, and big as, and adverbs, it worked sweet as. As linguists Laurie and Winifred Bauer have noted, elliptical slang phrases go back further than this too, such as in the classic 1940s Australian and New Zealand expression of annoyance, wouldn't it? A wealth of expressions could hide in this absence, rot your socks, rip you, make you sick, make you spit tacks, but are shuttered off by stylized verbal incoherence in the style of can't even. Why do slang expressions omit major grammatical components? Well, it certainly makes them more eye-catching, but it may also revolve around the in-group, out-group function that slang carries. Only members of your select gang can fill in the blanks, and you signal your knowledge of those blanks by using these expressions. That segment was written by Isabel Burke, a research fellow of linguistics at Monash University, and appears here in abbreviated form through a Creative Commons license and with permission. You can find the full article at lens.monash.edu. And if, like me, halfway through that segment, you wondered, why do we call an old saying an old chestnut? Well, the online etymology dictionary has the answer. The entry says the slang sense, meaning a venerate joke or story, can be traced back to a melodrama called The Broken Sword, published in 1816, in which a character repeatedly tells a story about a chestnut tree. Finally, I have a familect story. Hi there. I really enjoy your podcast, so I thank you so much for it. Um... I just have a familex I wanted to share. I've got four young kids, and this was started by my second, who's a boy, and he's six years old. Sometimes we eat macaroni and cheese, and we were serving him some, and he had had a first helping, a 
and then he asked for another helping and he wanted it on his Mackin. And we didn't really understand what he meant, but he was referring to the residue of cheese that was left on his plate from the mac and cheese. And so I guess he got Mackin from the mac and cheese. And we've decided it's spelled M-A-C-K-E-N, and we refer to the Mackin often when we have mac and cheese. Thank you. Thank you. I will think of that now when I eat macaroni and cheese. If you want to share the story of your family act or family dialect, a word your family and only your family uses, call the voicemail line at 83-321-4-GIRL, and I might play it on the show. Grammar Girl is a Quick and Dirty Tips podcast. Thanks to my editor, Adam Cecil, and my audio engineer, Nathan Sims, who's looking forward to a trip in October to see his fiance in Germany. Our ad operations specialist is Morgan Christensen. Our digital operations specialist is Holly Hutchings. And our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find me on Twitter and YouTube as Grammar Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart, every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.